Welcome to Inside Aesthetics, the world's leading podcast for injectors and cosmetic businesses. I'm Dr. Jake Sloan, an aesthetic doctor based in Sydney, and I'm joined by my co-host and good friend David Segal, an entrepreneur and an aesthetic business mentor. Each episode of IA showcases unfiltered conversations with guests from around the world. In a sometimes disjointed industry, IA aims to help educate and connect our global community to raise the bar for both our businesses and our patients. To further support and educate our listeners, we offer a range of additional resources under our IA Patreon subscription service. This caters for injectors and business owners of all levels and includes interactive live Zoom sessions, webinars, hints and tip videos, private chat groups and exciting future content to come. To subscribe to IA Patreon, head to www.insideaesthetics.com forward slash Patreon or click the link in our podcast description. You should seek medical advice before undergoing any treatment or procedure and these podcasts do not replace a professional and bespoke consultation. Morning, buddy. How hey, are you? I'm good. It's a drizzly, drizzly, rainy Yeah, it was London nice day. last week, but a bit fresh, but now it's just rainy and looks like London outside. What do you do? It's what winter. Do you do? It's winter. And today we are joined by the lovely Audrey Rose, all the way from the United States, for another Injected episode Doris. of Injected Diaries, Chapter 14. Yeah, we're powering on with these ones, but they're, they're very popular and we're spreading our wings to back to the Americas and yes. different city this time. So, Audrey, good morning. How are you today? Good morning, guys. Well, good night, as I am in Boston, and um, it's nighttime here, but morning to you guys. It's lovely watching you have coffee. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> What's the weather like where you are, Audrey? The weather's very, it's New England, so it feels like England here too. <laughs> right. Okay. Fair enough. Fair yeah, enough. Now, just to orientate some of our listeners who may be new to the Injector Diaries, here we get injectors on from all over the world of varying abilities and experience. Audrey today is very experienced. Um, and we sort of delve into their background, how their why, how, how does their clinic work, and yeah. why do they choose particular products? Yeah, and I think that these episodes are very helpful for, for listeners because, as, as you said, Jake, we've got people from all different walks of life, different demographics in terms of where they where they treat out of sort of clients or patients that they're seeing different levels of experience and just sort of sharing your story in terms of what's worked for you, what hasn't worked for you. And I think there's something that any, everyone can sort of pick up from each one of these episodes and people can relate because everyone that's listening is in a different stage of their, of their career. So very, very helpful. Yeah. So Audrey, why don't you showcase yourself? Tell, tell everyone about you, where you're from, where you were born and a little bit about, you know, what you do now. So I have to tell you, this is a long story. We're ready. Um, We've got kidding. our coffee. It's all good. <laughs> I'm a transplant. I'm, I was born and raised in uh, Jamaica. Mm -hmm. And I moved here when I was 15. I'm about 41 now. So I've been here for 20-something years. And we initially moved to the Boston region. I lived in New Hampshire for a little bit and sort of um, back in Boston now as of this week. Now, I got into the field because I was very frustrated at the bedside. I worked in a thoracic surgery ICU. We were doing, you know, EPP. I don't know if you guys know what that is, but it's an extra pleural pneumonectomy where it ripped people's lungs out, the lining of their heart. You know, they really are terminal patients. And if they could survive that surgery, then they could maybe perhaps live for two to three years. And I started getting very depressed. Mm. This patient's prognosis was really terrible. 
And as a child growing up in the Caribbean, I'm an only child. So I used to tell you doctor all the time with my, you know, trees, my fruit trees. <laughs> <laughs> so I really loved medicine and I didn't want to leave medicine no matter what. And I thought to myself, you know, before anything got involved, before money got involved, when you were at your purest stage, what was it that you loved at that time? And I really have to take a real deep dive, you know, as a child, what did I love? And I loved cosmetics. I loved playing hairdresser as much as I loved playing doctor. And I really wanted to marry both industries. And being a Botox cosmetic nurse came up. Now, at the time, there wasn't too many trainings around. And I was like begging people, I'll volunteer. I'll come <laughs> hang out at your clinic so I could understand this, right? Um, and I found one doctor at the time that was doing training. And I took a course and I haven't looked back since. What year was that when you kind of first dabbled with Botox and thought, wow, this is for me? When was that? So that was over a decade ago. <laughs> right. Okay. And were you a patient um, first? Had you had you tried it yourself or was it just, you know, applying the, the, the treatments that attracted you? Of course, I was a model in my first class. I had to get that <laughs> liquid brawler. <laughs> <laughs> right. I like to practice what I preach, right? So I have to try a little bit of everything if I'm going to recommend it to patients, walk them through the experience. It's a lot easier when I do that. So, you know, at the time, too, Black people weren't really too much into aesthetic procedures. I remember my mom. She's like, Black don't crack. I don't <laughs> need to be your model. Yeah. <laughs> and now I can't get her out of my chair if there's a plot cancellation. <laughs> she just automatically appear it's crazy wow and so at the time so 10 years ago what was the general feeling in the marketplace about these procedures i know when i opened up my clinics everything was very hush hush patients weren't very open about the procedures they were having done there was a lot of cash under the table people thought there were like drug deals going on you know they didn't want their husband to find out very conscious about bruising and and so on so what what was that like during this time I have to tell you, it's exactly everything you just said. I was hiding with the clients and making up stories <laughs> for them to tell their husband, right? You know, so I would say, tell them you had this facial or this kind of facial that caused this. Tell them we did PRP. Um, and now we've evolved so much that my patients are coming in with their phones out, ready to broadcast to the whole world. It's really interesting to watch this transcend, you know, from patient hiding it to squirreling away cash. They go to the supermarket, they get cash back so their husband doesn't know. And just really squirreling away money for a month to be able to afford to come see me. And I was like a dirty little secret. <laughs> <laughs> to now the the cat's out the bag. I remember going with a, uh, not going with a client, but seeing a client out for drinks. And she was there with her husband at the time. And I looked at her and I know she wasn't going to be able to explain why I was there. So I kept my mouth shut and pretended like I didn't know her. Yeah. 
And I remember she looked at me and she I, she just kept drinking the martinis. And after like three of them, she was just like, screw it. This is the woman that makes me pretty, introduces me to her husband. She's like, forget about it. I don't care anymore. She's like, I couldn't see you and not say hi. And, you know, saying hi would have had her having to explain why she, how she knew me, you know? So it's, it's pretty cool to watch this evolve. It's an amazing journey. That's hilarious. I think we've all got those stories as injectors. I, I still, um, in our local shopping center where I used to work with David, you know, still together with my kids and, and I always bump into patients and exactly the same. I just keep my eyes forward. I pretend <laughs> I haven't seen them and they do the same thing. And we just, yeah. you know, kind of cross light ships at night yeah. and just pretend that nothing happened. Yeah. People do that to me too, but I'm not even a doctor. Or a doctor. I don't know. <laughs> it's just my personality. <laughs> People pretend they don't know me. <laughs> no, Audrey, um, you, you, I think you said you trained over 10 years ago and, and we're going to get onto your own training school and, and stuff like that. But what did you think of the training that you received? And many of us have stories when we look at back at our training of how maybe how silly it was, how basic it was. So what was your experience? I look back and I say to myself, like, where did you get the balls from? Yeah pie a needle in someone's face after this training i just must have been so confident mm. i mean can i say balls yeah you here? can yeah. big balls if you want <laughs> okay good i <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know i thought to myself after taking a weekend course where did you conjure up the confidence and i use that as a platform to really curate our training to make it a little bit different for that same reason. And we have so many um, safety nets in line in the event we train somebody and they're just not ready. So we kind of hold your hands a little bit closer than what I received. I mean, it was a weekend. I split a model with someone. They did half a face. I did half the face. But I was confident. <laughs> well, well, they say fake it, fake it till you make it. Yeah, I actually don't like that. Yeah, I know, but part. it's a thing, right? You, you hear it all the time. <laughs> well, isn't it the, yeah. the Dunning Kruger curve where you know the earliest inexperienced injectors are the most confident and then as you get more experience you become less confident because you realize just how technical <coughs> and scary some you know complications are so that that's actually a really common thing yeah uh with newer injectors and you've seen that oh yeah i call it uh, unconscious incompetence you don't know what you don't know and they're the most dangerous yeah. because you have no fear and especially back then audrey when we're injecting nasolabial folds without and lips without any understanding that vascular occlusions were even a thing. And so we're just injecting with impunity, really. And I'm, I'm still to this day staggered by the fact that we didn't have any major complications or none that I've seen that yeah. happened during that period because there was no concept of what to do if it happened or even to look out for the warning signs. It's actually quite astounding that we didn't have made major things going wrong. Yeah. I know. Is it that we were just doing less that we didn't, you know, it's like the more you do, the more you see kind of thing. Yeah. I I mean, I look back and you're right. He's a labial folds. We didn't even address cheeks back then. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It would fill these folds with big break in like cheek lid junctions and 
we didn't really care about that so much. We were just hyper focused on like chasing the lines and you know, even the way we we did lips. Yeah. Now the more we know, it's almost like ooh. Wow. Yeah, exactly. So you're doing sort of well, you're starting your training, you're doing like models on the weekend, you're sort of finding your way through it but like how did you sort of then progress with your training after after then so you're obviously highly successful you've got your own practice now so what happened in between that period and how did you continue to develop your skill set and I guess your business acumen as well because you've got a very successful practice now can you sort of take us through that journey a little bit as well well I think my personality right I'm very obsessive once I'm like a dog with a bone. So once I get an idea into my head, there's like no getting it out. And a lot of times I found myself in places that I didn't even speak the language looking for training, how hungry I was. Right. So I remember being in Colombia with headphones on for translation, just so I could see what different parts of the world was doing. Right. So I was, I even remember at one point being in Monaco before that AMWC conference was popular, right? And I just remember being there like, wow, look at these lecturers, they're on stage. Someday I'll be like them. And I had that phenomenon this year, actually in um, February, when I had an opportunity to lecture at NWC North America, I was like, I remember sitting in the audience. So to answer your question, because I could go on and on, right? I talk a lot. I was hungry for the education. It didn't matter where it was. At one point, my content was like, you just spent $50,000 in a year in training. And I think people don't realize how much of that you have to do. And... I felt like that gave me a lot more confidence, like just going straight out every single training, every single video I could watch, every single article I could pull up. So it's very obsessive. And I think I had a lot of patience to start with from referrals, from my mom. I gathered all her friends. So I had the practice part down really well um, to start. So I think that's where a lot of my confidence come from. Now, the business side, that's a clinical side. Back then, every conference I went to was clinically geared. Now, I see a lot more of the conference are attaching a business model to things. So I had a lot of pitfalls. Like I had a lot of really bad learning experience, like marketing, where to put your money, website, what should that look like? How should they do that? Like, what what's an SEO like for <laughs> Christ's sake? What's geofencing? Yeah, like yeah, and you have to really truly understand those things because they're a huge part of you being successful, right? Um, yeah. So I had to learn some hard lessons business wise, but clinically I had a leg up because I was obsessed with training. Yeah, you always see that with the people that rise to the top in any pursuit whether it's music whether it's work their job whatever it is for them to become the best there has to be almost an unhealthy level of obsession and you see you see that like i was watching like the michael jordan uh sort of documentary and you just don't realize yes he was genetically gifted yes but he the the work ethic and the obsession 
was just unrivaled. And, and that and that's and you see that um, all the time with with high performers. But who who were your mentors back then? And I mean, I know that it's a, it's a, it's a pretty commonly referred to sort of thing these days. Someone's got a mentor or someone that they look up to. We, we live in a world now where you've got access to so many experts. Who were your mentors? Did you have anyone that sort of guided you through it that you could pick up the phone and say, hey, I've got a question. I've got this no. issue. Okay. No, I felt like when I started, there wasn't a lot of people doing it. And I feel like in our culture here in Boston, people didn't like to share. Yeah. Um, and there wasn't a resource that was handed on a platform or somebody I could call and say, Hey, because we just didn't have that many people. Mm. As you could see, I was leaving the country to get training, to look for more. Um, I do remember being around Shino Bay and remember going to his practice. And I remember thinking, man, he's got something here. This guy is not seeing any new patients. He's booked out for how many days? And I also saw him lecture at AMWC. And I thought to myself, man, I would really like to have a practice like this guy someday. So he was really, I wouldn't say a mentor, but he was someone I looked at and I, I, I really kind of admire what he was doing in the industry. Yeah, shout out to Shino, he's a good guy. Um, saw him, I think it was yeah. at AMWC recently. So, yeah. Um, what about yeah. heroes then? Who did you think, apart from Shino, like, did you ever get trained by, I don't know, Arthur Swift or, you know, some of these sort of rock stars that, you know, we all kind of love and, and learn from? Or, or did you do your own thing and, and sort of learn from maybe lesser known, you know, injectors? I love Arthur Swift. I mean, the man is great lecturer have you watched him yeah we've had, oh, yeah. We've had him on our podcast yeah yeah oh yeah just just amazing um for me i have to really tell you the true heroes for me in this industry are my staff yeah wow okay i know i really have to tell you that um you know my mom is our patient concierge I have a phenomenal office manager who turned into our training school manager. And they've just really got my back, just very loyal, iron out every single detail. So while I'm over here, they really help me with the implementation process of all my ideas. Because myself, I'm truly an idea bag and I'll come up with a thousand ideas, but there has to be someone in place to really play that hero, as yeah. you guys were saying, and really come in with that cape and got your back. Yeah. And that's how I feel about my staff. That's I love a tangent, Audrey. So thank you for for taking us here because I love these. So staffing, it's a problem with every business. I've at one stage had six or seven clinics at the same time. I've had you know, 15, 20 nurses working for me, therapists, like 80 or 90 of them at one time. And staffing was always the bane of my existence. And it was always hard to find people, the interview process. How do you know if this person's real? Are they just giving you like some sort of bullshit story to make sure that you hire them? So you found your your sort of your A-team or your, your support team. So how did you find these people? What was your recruitment process like? And how do you retain them? Because that's a big thing, right? You find someone that's great, you know, one of a couple of things is going to happen. They're going to get poached by someone else. So it's going to offer them a better opportunity and more money. 
or they're going to think, screw it, why do I need to work for this person? I can go and do this for myself or I can go and do my, my own thing. So can you sort of give us a bit of insight into what your secret is in terms of finding and, and sort of cult- cultivating and keeping these people? Well, well hopefully Audrey's mum doesn't leave her. Yeah. Otherwise, otherwise, there's a real problem. I would be in a lot of trouble, you guys. But as you're asking me this question, I just feel like my brain's going ping, ping, ping. There's so many like different avenues and ways I can truly answer this. And um, I would say when you find people, you have to have things that motivate them. You have to understand where their long-term goal is. And people want to feel somehow like they're growing, right? So let me let me just backpedal just to give you guys a sense of what my staff look like. My clinical staff are people who thrive to be like me. So I train people but I also hire them. And I also hire people who aspire to open up their own business. And I also hire people that are within my practice that are in the process of opening their own business, which is really interesting because that's a lot of time what most people are afraid of. But I have that conversation with them upfront. So I'm very transparent. I say, you know, I'm probably going to get three years out of this relationship because I understand that eventually you want to go this way. And when you go this way, I will help you. Right. And and I have multiple people in my practice that's like that. Like one of my main injectors who's been with me for six years, I'm about to lose him because he wants to open his own practice. And I would be a hypocrite to not support that Mm. because at one point I wanted my own practice too. Right. So I'd be a hypocrite to deny him of that. But for the six years that I had him, he's done phenomenal. We took very good care of our patients. We were very transparent. We developed a really nice relationship. And I just say, keep that communication line open. And a lot of my hiring comes from my intuition. Mm. And sometimes it fails me. But 90 times, out of a hundred, it doesn't. Yep. And not only are you motivating them, you're finding out what motivates them, but you're also supporting them. So you're supporting work-life balance. You're giving insurance. I'm matching 401k. You know, I am recognizing things that they do really well. So not only times when things are bad or something didn't go right, but, you know, we have tea time where I kind of just sit down with them and sort of discuss how they're feeling, how's the practice going, things they think we can improve outside of our office meeting. So I think there's a bunch of little things that you could do to really, you know, retain your employees, but also picking the right fit for your milieu is really important. And a lot of that has to do with your intuition. You could give somebody a personality test. I mean, they're going to pass it if they want to, right? And still show up and not not produce or not be transparent. So, yeah. Yeah. It's a difficult one, isn't it? Because you sort of, when you first get started in the sort of entrepreneurial 
journey, you're, you're kind of naive to all these things and you take a lot of things on face value and you sort of go through what would be considered best practice for an interview. And I, I got to a stage in my career, where I just threw all that shit out the window and said, <laughs> uh, this is not helpful because people come in with rehearsed answers. They understand how this works. And I, my, my strategy wasn't, I've spoken about this on the podcast before, was to take people into an environment where I could actually get to know them. I, I sort of took the attitude, I don't care what you know, or what you can do. I care who you are. Because I can't, I can change the other things. I can give you the skills, but I can't change who you are as a person. And that's what I want to try and understand. And for me, that that was what worked for me. It's like I want to know who you are, not what you can do. And that tended to, when I sort of changed to that strategy, it tended to give me a lot more um, quality candidate and people that were with me. And also looking at, like I was creating like a sports team. Not everyone's going to be like the scorer. You need people in your team who can do different things and complement each other because you're going to have different strengths and weaknesses and trying to create a team that's cohesive and everyone has their role to play on the field, I guess, as it would be an analogy that that sort of I that I worked with. But I, I mean, it sounds like you've done pretty much the same thing. You really want to know who these people are, what their goals are, what drives them, what motivates them, and then trying to match them with that. You got it. And oftentimes too, we have a fellowship program. Yeah. And I to pretty much hire most of my fellows because yeah. they spend so much time with me. So we actually get to know each other, right? And they're willing to invest into their career to hang out with me for three months or six months. Yeah. And for me, that's huge. So mm-hmm. yeah, uh, that's I'm, a great point though. I'm wondering whether you're a little bit more open-minded about you know people doing their own thing eventually because you've got this really great business model where you're running your clinic, but you're also running the training school. So they sort of feed into each other. So regardless of you know what your injector does, you know that the pipeline is fresh with more injectors coming through. So it kind of works. It, it, would you say that that's really the key to it all? I think, I think you're absolutely right. So we can always staff because we know who goes through our training, who might be a good fit. So we could kind of queue up the next person. But I think if you're hiring somebody who wants to start their own business and you don't have that conversation up front and you don't talk to them about the timeline of their departure and you don't keep that communication line open, then it could certainly go sour. Yeah. I think a lot of people are afraid of having that discussion. So it's just sort of like everyone knows it, but they're not willing to talk about it. And I think you're right. I think being upfront and having that conversation just creates a environment of trust where you've said to them, hey, like, I know this is what you're going to do. Come and tell me, I'll help you do it. It's sort of because I think a lot of the time, especially with like younger people that I've had working in my businesses, they're too scared to talk about it. They're not really that great at sort of what could be a confrontational conversation. And sort of if you open that door first, which is what you've done, it just sort of it, it sort of creates the right environment for honesty and for people to tell you what their intentions are. So I think that's that's brilliant. I mean, like you're one of the first people we've spoken to that's sort of been really upfront about that. So I think a lot of people who've got practices that are listening will, will find that really helpful and informative. I would be a, a sort of remiss if I didn't ask you about had you thought about expanding your business having more locations if you've got these great people that you've cult that you've developed and, and created like a culture with in terms of expanding and actually saying well hey let's go and do something together audrey rose sydney maybe yeah i know <laughs> i mean i thought about it um 
And I'm in the process of trying to implement that with the school. Yep. Like we've extended down to Boca. We're in New Hampshire. We're in Mass. And we're working on another deal now. I'm not going to say which state because I'm not sure if the deal's going, going, going to go through. Mm-hmm. But I'm very like a crazy person when it comes to the school because I'm really proud of what we've created and it's very hard to duplicate. So if I'm going to be a weekend school out of a Marriott, yes, that's easy to duplicate, but we're not just that. And it makes it a lot harder. So most of our nurses that do our training class, so for example, you do an intro to neurotoxin. You're going into a didactic for hours. You're having to see two models that day. Then you come back and you're doing a one-to-one training with six to eight models just on upper face neurotoxin. That's so good. I don't know anyone who does that, really. It's it's the things that we talk about. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really hard for us to duplicate because we're fortunate enough especially in mass where we've been build this model clientele. So we have the models to support that. And we have like model membership. So we have people that come into the school just for that. So we're able to do that and do that well. So most of our nurses that leave, they feel confident. And if they don't, we still have another clinic that we can set up for them. And they still have shadow days. So we have all these little things. We have an aesthetic code team. We have, you know, an aesthetic buddy that we assign them to. So it's very hard to duplicate. And we have to align with the right people to branch out and scale. Yep. What we've noticed here, maybe there's just this anecdote, everyone's different, but I find a lot of American injectors actually quite happy to invest in their education. Whereas here, sometimes it feels a bit difficult to get people to realize that to learn and to grow, they've got to basically invest in it because no one else, you know, no, unlikely to get that for free unless of course, you know, you join a clinic and you're like the apprentice injector to, to eventually work there. That, that often happens, but I don't know. I mean, it seems like you're, you're running an amazing thing where people are happy to come and spend good money to invest in good training. Whereas the thing that we've often spoke about on the podcast is that we feel like a lot of the training offered to injectors is probably substandard. People don't really see the value of it and then they don't know where to go. And it's like this vicious cycle. So it seems like you've sort of really thought about that and expanded out what basic training should be into something a little bit more useful. So tell us about how you sort of develop the, the syllabus, because I haven't heard anyone, you know, taking neurotoxin you know, it's not, it's not like a crazy level, but you're giving them more models, more experience, more hands-on just for that basic training, which is great. And I did that because I basically listen, right? So I asked for feedback and I take that feedback and I remember when I trained what I had, right? And what I would have wanted to have. So I took that feedback and implemented it because what would happen, because we started initially, say maybe they don't split models, but they get two models. 
But what would happen is they would come back and say, I don't feel ready. Yeah. And we had that multiple times. Yeah. So then we decided to just change our curriculum and make them ready. And now we barely get that, maybe 2% of the time. Yeah. And we have a clinic in place for that in the event they feel that way or shadow way. Um, so we listen to what our students tell us and we alter accordingly, especially if we notice that there's a trend. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you know a number off the top of your head, but what would it look like to, to pay for something like that for that basic neurotoxin course? I'm just curious. So our basic neurotoxin course is about 2000 Okay, that's pretty reasonable, I think. That's really good. Yeah, they yeah. get a lot for their money. Yeah, I mean, I've had people shadowing me recently of, of varying ability, but um, one of the most common things that comes up, and you've, you've already addressed it in your training, is you show them a model, you talk about one face, and they go, okay, I think I get it. And then they go back to their clinic and they go, oh, it's a different face. Now what do I do? <laughs> 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 or it's a man, or it's a woman, or it's a different race of patient. Um, so exactly. people get you get lost. You need variety in your exactly. training before you get into the real world. It's like learning to drive a car and only going on one street. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You need to learn how to drive on the highway. Yeah. Right? And on windy roads. <laughs> exactly. Now, I want to get into some deep aesthetic chat, if that's okay with you. And you, you actually mentioned right at the start, you said that your mum used to come out with the comment, black don't crack. And, you know, um, I'm from the UK. We've got a lot of um, Indian um, sort of patients and even from friends and family who I knew who were Indian, they had a similar sort of attitude to injectables. They didn't think it was relevant for them or, you know, they didn't think it was for them because, you know, they aged differently or better. So I just wanted to get your insights. First of all, do you do you see more black patients because, you, you know, you're a woman of color? Do you just attract those patients or, you know, what's your normal demographic? You do normal. So I would say 80% of my practice is Caucasian. Right. Based on my geographic location. Yeah. But I do have a higher percentage of black patients. Yeah. Obviously, because of my skin color. You know, I've had a patient said to me, I kept scrolling looking for someone and I found you because you look like me, yeah. right? Um, so I can identify with that. I can tell you guys, I had a mommy makeover and my surgeon I know very well and love him dearly, but I needed to see before and afters photos of people that actually look like me yeah. for that deal to be sealed, right? Because we want to identify in ourselves someone that's done something that's similar to us so we could get a visual of what that would that outcome would look like so yeah. you know i had a patient said you're the only person that i saw that did this lips that looked this way and that's very similar to mine so i'm going to come to you same thing you look like me and you've had botox so now i know what that's going to look like on me so i'm going to come to you for that reason yeah so I definitely see a lot more uh, black patients. I have patients that buy in um, from different states um, because they feel like they could identify with me more so than my skill set. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do, do you feel that um, 
you know, for example, here in Australia, we're mainly Caucasian population. We like to think of ourselves as quite uh, multicultural, but, you know, we don't have many black patients. So I certainly don't. And, um, you know, just from a, I guess, a demographic for the population, you just don't see that many black people here in at least this part of Sydney. Whereas, you know, obviously in America, it's a totally different demographic. So as an injector, do you feel like you've ever been given the education to treat different subpopulations or is it still sort of the generic stuff driven by pharma where it's tends to historically been focused on, you know, basically Caucasian middle-aged women. I, I think that's the truth. Yeah. That language is changing now, right? Yeah. So that environment is sort of evolving a little bit more. Yeah. And now we're looking at how does a black person age versus a white person, are we fitting that same lip ratio that we're teaching everybody, one third to two thirds? Yeah. Does that look different in Latino patients or Asian patients? What are my Black patients mostly coming in complaining of? What are the things I need to look out for? If I get an occlusion with a Black person, what is that going to look like yeah. for my assessment? Because we can't see that particular like pattern in them, right? It's going to look a little different. We can't see blanching as well in them, especially if they're darker. Um, so. I think that environment is shifting and changing and we're going to see a lot more education around that because it's really an untapped market in the U.S. I don't know about Australia where there's so many Black patients that just haven't been treated or educated. Yeah. And when they do, it really is, you know, a financial gain for a lot of these pharmaceutical companies. So they're now trying to understand it it's not just you know it's you know black history month they're looking for me to give a talk right we're gonna try to have that talk all year round yeah um you know about our our patient population yeah and what's best for them and it also gets complicated because we've got some well especially here in australia we've got so many mixed races as well so you've got sort of people that are sort of having children from different ethnic backgrounds so you might have someone who's half black half white someone that's half asian you've got like various skin tones you've got people that have got certain features from one race and and certain features from another race on the, on the same face and so i think that we you know <laughs> this whole sort of uh you know cookie cutter following a pro following a protocol is becoming more and more difficult as we sort of continue to diversify as a population. So it's really interesting seeing how it's going. I'm not sure what your experience is, Jake, but I mean, I see people walking through the shopping center all the time and I'm thinking, I wonder where they're from. I wonder what their ethnic background is because they don't look like from anywhere in particular. They've sort mm. of got bits and pieces from everywhere around the world, particularly here in Sydney, where we've just got, we've had so much immigration over the last sort of 50, 60 years. Yeah. And it's I, becoming quite complicated. I, I love meeting patients yeah. from mixed backgrounds. One, just because it's interesting to talk to them about you know where your parents from and who you're more culturally aligned to etc but then you, you sort of break that down into something you know more aesthetic and I just ask my patients you know you've got I don't know Asian Caucasian sort of features what is it that resonates with you and then we sort of try and work with that because like you said if I just assume that I don't know, a classic one is Asians always want a westernized nose which they don't by the way but us Caucasian injectors are often taught that, that 
you know, it's popular in Korea, so we just assume that everyone wants one, which isn't true. So just ask your patient mm. what, what what resonates with you. What do you like? What don't you like? And I love it. that you ask your patients. That's amazing. Yeah, and, and you know, and I even ask them to identify sort of on my intake form, like how do you describe yourself, both from a sex perspective, but also a cultural perspective, because what I see might not be what they feel. Um, so and I, it takes away the provider bias, so you're not forcing your biases. Yeah, absolutely. On their outcome. Um, so, so what are the most or some of the common concerns that you see with your black patients? I mean, are they very different to what you see in your Caucasian patients? I think a lot of times for our black patients, <clears throat> tear troughs is mm. one of those things that is an issue hyperpigmentation is an issue. Um, sometimes, believe it or not, even though we genetically uh, tend to have bigger lips, but lip proportion um, is also important um, with lip augmentation, lots of liquid rhinoplasty uh, and Botox. Yeah, interesting. And you sort of touched on it earlier, but I, I'm sort of asked you maybe a bit of a controversial question. The the drive from some of the companies, skincare companies and pharma to sort of, you know, showcase diversity and inclusivity. Are you a little bit cynical of that? Or do you think it's basically a positive thing and, and we're going in the right direction? I think they have more work to do right um, okay. <laughs> very diplomatic it's more so than it's it's more so than just changing a brochure and maybe including and as i said you know posting all the hands together of different ethnic background on the, you know in february when it's black history month i think there's a lot more work that needs to be done there and not only in education but from a provider standpoint, right? Mm. Being inclusive of your providers, being trainers. Yes. So we have a lot of companies that you will look at their Rasta and literally they'll have 500 trainers in the country and they all look alike. Yeah. Mm. Right? So how are you going to be different if you don't have people that look different that is on that panel training for you yeah we start there we start with including those providers in not only including them because they buy big for your company but because they can add value yeah and they see things at a different perspective one of the things i love about my life my kids are mixed race we travel a lot and my friends are from everywhere and I learn so much and I'm so much richer mm. in life, not financially, but in life from being exposed to different culture and different people and different background. I learned so, so much, right? So my Moroccan friend, I'm going to learn more from than my Serbian friend is going to teach me something different. And it's the same thing with their assessment. And it's the same thing as the provider. So not only from the consumer standpoint, you're changing your marketing. Let's change it from the HCP standpoint. Mm. Let's yeah. mix things up a little bit. Yeah. Let's give up opportunities to different uh, ethnic background providers. 
Yeah, I mean, you're you're a KOL for a number of companies, and we'll sort of get into that in a sec. But is that a conversation you've maybe had with these companies, or is it still all the time? Right. All okay. The time. Fair enough. No, that I think that's great, and and I totally agree with you. Um, so why don't we talk about your your training capacity then? So you're a trainer for Galderma, Allegan, mm-hmm. Everless. I used to train for Galderma. I don't anymore. Everless. I'm a consultant for them. So I work very closely with them. Mm-hmm. Same thing with MERS and, and um, Allergan. And also Prelenium? There's a company called Prelenium as Prelenium, well. Yeah. Yes. They're out of Canada. Amazing company. I love working with them. They have one product with two indication in the United States, but several in Canada. So, I mean, here in Australia, maybe it's just, again, Australian sort of weird thing, or maybe it's not weird, that we tend to train for one company, unless, you know, you're kind of a rock star injector and you're sort of training for all these other companies. So do you ever feel like you're saying different things on stage just to sort of suit the company line, as it were? Never. Right. Okay. Fair enough. Because we're, you know, I get in trouble all the time for it. (laughs) Well, what I mean is, and David can sort of talk (laughs) about this as well, is that we often get painted, to be completely honest, as paid stooges to go on stage and say something, you know, because we have to speak on label, we've got to speak in the in the company language, and you know. It's not a show. We're talking about real clinical data from real studies, but you're sort of speaking in a way that maybe isn't practical to real life because you've got to speak on label and you kind of can't talk about off label and and so on. So how do you sort of marry that? Because you're speaking for different companies and you're also trying to give your own flavor on things. So how do you do it? I try to be authentic and I give my own flavor on things in some sense, right? So if I'm petitioned, obviously we have to speak on label for certain things mm-hmm. and the slide deck is already predetermined for you. But if I'm ever asked a question in the audience, I answer that as authentic as possible. I give real life scenario of what I do in my clinic, um, whether it involves that product that I'm speaking on or not. I know. I get in trouble all the time for it, guys. That's good. No, I like you. I love that. Sometimes I tend to be honest. And, you know, a lot of times people will go through my Instagram and it's like, oh, but you're using this syringes. Or I've even had a rep come into my practice. You wouldn't believe this. And told me, I can't send you any more um, trainer trainings because you are using all those other garbage products. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? Such, yeah. And that to me was so disgusting. So I literally had to tell her, like, I'm an artist. These are my paintbrush. And I assess my patient and I choose what I see fit for them at that time. And I don't limit myself while I might use one thing more than the other because my patient outcome and they might think, this product is great and I get good results from it, but I never limit myself. I can't have any biases. I have a school that's accredited, so I am open to all of them. So it's either you want to work with me or you don't. Yeah. I think that's awesome. Yeah. I, I think that attitude is becoming more and more popular. I think that people are starting to see through a lot of the bullshit 
and the fact they don't want to be yes. dictated to in terms of what product they can and can't use. And, you know, every every company's got a study that shows that their product's better than everyone else's. I think people are now becoming aware that you can basically create a study to show whatever you want, really. At the end of the day, you can omit whatever facts don't suit you and you can sort of massage the ones that you want to give the the sort of outcome that you desire. So I think that people are waking up to that, but it's, you know, people like you that are having those honest conversations and being brave enough to say, well, no, I'm going to do what's best for my patients. I'm going to have a, a wide variety of products here and I'm going to choose appropriately. I'm the healthcare provider, you're not. Mm. So thank you very much, but uh, I'll make my own decisions. <laughs> so I think that, I think it's great to be honest with you. Um, I was going to ask you about the, the general aesthetic trends that are happening. I know here in Australia, we've had a bit of a shift away from the over augmented look. I mean, there are still people that, that want to, to look that way and that's fine, you know, each to their own. But there tends to be a lot of the injectors that I talk to and Jake talks to and people we've had on the podcast, there tends to be people wanting more of that natural look. They're sort of tending to pull back a lot from, you know, the big lips and the big cheeks and making it really obvious that they've had things done. And we're seeing like sort of a, a bit of a renaissance with biostimulators. I mean, there's been some on the market f for a long time that are enjoying a lot of sort of like renewed level of success and recognition, like products like Sculpture, for example. And we've had products like Profilo that have come onto the market and people are starting to see the value. So what are the trends that you're seeing and, and how are you approaching those sorts of consultations? And are you seeing those, those trends from your perspective as well? I would say the natural look trend is a real trend. And thanks to the Kardashians, right? <laughs> they got skinny. They no longer have a big butt. You know, they're dissolving lips. So the, the pop culture really rules our industry. And I find that most of my patients are going for a more natural look. I love that. I'm dissolving more lips than we're treating, right? Mm. Wow. Because <laughs> they've gone too far. And um, as far as trend right now, I would say the biggest trend in our practice and in our area is semi-butide. Ah, uh, yes. And mm. Yeah. Yeah. That is off the chart right now. Well, and... I was going to say, Dave and I were talking about this off uh, camera, but it's a, it's a good segue to maybe drop it in. So semiglutide, for those who don't know, maybe people know it better as a Zempic or these sort of weight loss injections. Is that what you're alluding to? Yes, yes, right. absolutely. So your clinic is actually called Ageless, sorry, Ageless Weight Wayless, is that correct? Yeah. Right. Okay. So it's obviously a big part of your practice. Now, when I got to even introduce my clinic, I just went talking. That's all right. No, it's no okay. I've done it for you. And your Instagram is Beautify Fairy, if people were wondering. Um, we'll put all this information at the bottom of the podcast. Um, yeah. So, so you've actually named your clinic, you know, way less. So it's obviously a big part of your practice. So when, when did you sort of get into these sorts of treatments? And I guess we want to ask you a little bit more about the um, how you consult those patients. Cause you know, I guess it's as easy as starting on a course of injections once a week, but it's, it's probably more than that. Mm. So just, we're curious to know it's how you incorporate more. it. Yeah. So tell us about your, your journey with that. It's interesting because you guys are like, what's trending? While I think, you know, bias simulators are trending a more natural look is trending weight loss have, Nothing like I've ever seen in my years of being in practice. 
um, since the approval of Wegovi um, and weight loss. And more and more providers are looking to incorporate it into their practice. I'm actually speaking at the Vegas Aesthetic Show on this um, next week. So I have been ageless realized for over a decade. We started out doing, you know, appetite suppressants such as fentramine, phenometrazine, coupled with a diet protocol with weekly weigh-ins, making sure that the indication is appropriate for the patient um, based on BMIs and so forth. We also did an off-label use of ATG for weight loss and you know, um, peptides such as AOD. And recently with the approval of Wegovy, we used a compounded um, form of semi-glutide through the compound pharmacy. And with this, the patients are weighing in weekly. We're monitoring their symptoms. We're titrating their dose. They're getting a phenomenal weight loss, uh, minimal side effects, um, most side effects are GI uh, related, and it's just been it's just been great. Mm. It's been really rewarding yeah. to watch I, our patients. I know you've got a question Not about this. Not only patients, day. but we did a webinar to. Um, mm. We have two webinars that really go over this for aesthetic providers who wants to incorporate it into their practice. Yeah, d- d- I know David's got a question about the psychology of these patients, but I just wanted to ask from a very practical perspective. Obviously, there's a cosmetic, a big cosmetic component to this, and and I sort of understand, you know, why you've sort of dovetailed it into, a, you know, a, a facial aesthetic practice. But it, it's really a health treatment as well, particularly for the American market where you know obesity is huge. But you know, it's the worst no pun in intended. the world. Yeah. yeah, no pun intended. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, I mean, y- you are taking on a bit of a, a health. Uh, treatment as well as a cosmetic treatment so do you have i don't know nutritionists or or a general practitioner or or someone sort of overlooking you know blood pressure and and all the other things that come with obesity or is it just you're focusing on weight loss and then you give them back to their general practitioner so majority of the patients that seek us out is either they haven't spoken to their general practitioner or they've spoken to their general practitioner who's done nothing to help, who tells mm. them, eat these many calories, go mm. away, mm. right? Um, and they're just frustrated. So they land on our doorstep. And because we have a big aesthetic practice, they see that we do weight loss. So it's a great way for them to segue, vice versa. Uh, majority of our patients that want to get on our program, they get screened by a nurse practitioner who has independent practice in our state. So the nurse practitioner will review the medication, how it works, where we get it, their health. So they have to have a lab work done. They have to have a recent physical and all that get, you know, processed through our interview process and consultation process with the NP. If the NP deems them fit for the program, she approves it, prescribes it. They come in they follow up with a nurse or medical assistant who then coordinates their program. We have a BMI scale, like a body analytics scale that they weigh in weekly. They get their blood pressure done. We review if they're having any symptoms and so forth. Brilliant. Yeah. 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 I mean, as, as Jake sort of alluded to, I've got a few friends that are the bariatric surgeons here in Australia. And there's always, you hear these stories of people that go through these sort of getting 
surgical intervention done and, you know, they're blending Mars bars and putting them in smoothies because there's actually a psychological disorder in many cases that are, mm-hmm. that are causing this overeating. So I was just sort of curious in terms of the psychological side, is that something that you sort of look at as well in terms of helping people create new habits or is it, is I guess, as Jake sort of said, is it just sort of getting them on the right path from a physical perspective and then, um, yeah. Yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. So we have a webinar that sort of helps, you know, with the psychological part of that. We have nutritional counseling weekly for them. That's great, yeah. Um, and, and we do have a maintenance program. But I could tell you, nobody follows through for the most part on maintenance, just a few handful. Or, you know, once they've lost the weight, they're like, oh, I'm going on vacation. And we never see them until they regain the weight again. They're back, right? So Mm. it's a lot of counseling. It's ongoing. And I think obesity is just like any other disease that we just don't give credit to, right? If you're sick, you go to the doctor to get your blood pressure checked and your blood pressure is elevated. Guess what? They're going to prescribe to you. They're going to follow up with you. They're going to follow up with you until it's stable. And you're still going to have to follow up every three months for the rest of your life for that blood pressure, Mm. at least here in the States. If you go in and you're obese, there's none of that. There's no follow through. Here's a diet protocol. Maybe do this. There's no looking into anything. There's, it's just not well supported. So, yeah, you know, our culture is fast paced. It's easy. Everybody wants the next easiest thing, but mm-hmm. it's a lot of counseling that goes on with this and a lot of maintenance that most people don't adhere to. Yeah. It's pretty scary. I mean, I think that it's the most dangerous epidemic that's sort of (laughs) that's sort of facing western culture is this obesity because it's a precursor for every horrible disease that you can think of heart disease stroke diabetes you name it it's your chances of getting these things are heightened when you when you do have that bmi so it's disappointing that as as a culture we're not dealing with this in a more holistic manner because if we got people into a healthy rate range i think we'd all be much better as a, as a society but mm. it's, it's difficult because there are it's easy for someone who doesn't have the issue to say oh you know just fix it but i know i know it's difficult I, i've i've dealt i've got friends and people that i've met in the past and it, it's even family members who it's it's a real struggle and it needs to be dealt with better i think yeah um for the people who haven't heard of azempic you know you don't have to sort of go into the sort of biochemistry but like basically what does it do and and how often do people have it and maybe what do you charge for it as well i'm just curious to know about the business of it as well so basically it is hlp1 inhibitor and it uh stops you from emptying your stomach as quickly right so it delays gastric emptying it's keeps you full longer. So it really takes the handcuffs off people dieting because they're not hungry. They don't want it. It turns off that pleasure center. So for them, it's really easy for them to adhere to a diet. And when they eat, they're very full. Right. Um, and of course, it just helps to keep your blood sugar level and at a nice even key versus the ups and downs in your blood sugar and the spikes, right? So it's perfect for people with a BMI that's 30 or 27 with a comorbidity. Fantastic. We charge about 
$1,600 for a six weeks program. Our program space six weeks, 12 weeks, or six months. Um, and it really depends on how much weight you want to lose and then maintenance after that. Yeah. Do I truly believe that patients should be seeing their primary care for this? Yes. And in the aesthetic um, setting, we don't take patients with that are complicated to manage, right? So it's not our patient with heart disease and all these things happening to them. It really is mostly healthy, but just obese, just have that BMI, but yeah. doesn't have too much comorbidity. They might have an elevated blood pressure, but nothing that's going to be more difficult for us to manage. Yeah. Um, I think what is important for me to disclose is that we're using a compounded version. So yeah. technically... In the U.S., we can't say we're using Ozempic or Wegovy yep. because that would be misleading our patients, right? Because Wegovy or Nova Norvis, they have the patent to semiglutide. Hmm. So the form we use comes from a compounded pharmacy. We can obviously edit this out if, if you want to, but I, I read, it was only a week ago, that there was a bit of a storm with the company, the provider of, I don't know, one of these products, saying that they didn't like people making compounded versions because it's basically killing their practice. So is that in the States or was it, was it another country? Did you read about that? It's, it's probably in the States because right. they're actually stewing a bunch of med spas right. for falsely advertising Okay. That they're giving the patient Wegovy when they're not. Okay, so that was the issue. It's like false advertising rather than the fact that they're compounding. False advertising. Interesting. Rather than the fact that they're compound. And that's also another thing. Our consent form goes through the fact that they're compound. But these compounds are heavily regulated by the FDA, right? Mm. So, you know, if they get cited, we know. If they're doing practices that are not sterile, we know. So we've worked with the reputable compound in pharmacy and ones that are heavily regulated. Yeah. So, yeah. What percentage of your business is the weight loss side? So if you had to sort of look at it, cosmetic injectables versus weight loss, are they kind of fairly evenly split or is it one is much more, I guess, dominant than the other? Right now, weight loss is dominating. Right, okay. Believe it or not. And usually in the past, it's very cyclical, right? So after the holidays, when people got their face done in October and November for Christmas and New Year's, and they ate their way through the holidays, and then we come <laughs> in January for weight loss, right? Or in the spring before the summer, so usually we have highs and lows, depends on the time and month and what's going on for both practices. Yeah. So come end of September, October, November, we're extremely busy with aesthetic. But in the beginning of the year, we're more busy with weight loss. Right. Okay. So here's a question, and I'm going to use the word azempic, even though I know you're not using azempic, but there's this phenomenon of, of azempic face where you sort of look a bit gaunt and haggard after going through, you know, one of these weight loss journeys. So do you then get those patients into your aesthetic side and, and sort them out with a bit of sculpture, or is that kind of a bit of a, you know, a sub-niche of those patients and it's not that common? How would you sort of describe that? Guys, I have to tell you, 
I hate that we're saying the word ozempic phase. It drives me absolutely bonkers. <laughs> it irritates me so bad because it's just like any weight loss or any yeah. rapid weight loss. And we like to play on words. Yeah. And then, you know, the population gets bent out of shape. Like, I'm going to have a dentic phase. You would have had fentermine phase. You would have had HCG phase, you know. A less Big Mac you phase. You would have had any of yeah. those. And <laughs> less Big Mac, exactly, right? <laughs> But I, apparently it's a thing and it's a buzzword that we're using. So people are afraid of it. Like it's some new phenomenon. Yeah. Like it's like, yeah. you know, but yeah, we are treating our patients and we're using our programs to cross market. Yeah. So if you are on this program for three months and you lose weight, you get a percentage off this. You get a complimentary hydrofacial. So we have built-in systems so we're cross-marketing to those weight loss patients. Yeah. So let's talk about marketing for a second because obviously you do it very well. It's like, what, what, what is your strategy? Do you have someone that helps you with this? Are you sort of f- figuring it out as you go and you know, in terms of like maximizing what you can do with your, I don't know whether you call it a CRM over there, like the, whatever software program you use to manage your, your patient database. So just talk us through that because it's a question a lot of practitioners and business owners want the answer to in terms of how they should effectively market themselves. So if you could share some of your insights, that would be great. Oh man. And I struggle with this. If you had to ask me one thing that I struggle with the most getting into this industry is the marketing. Yeah. Like where do you put your freaking money? Yeah. And these marketing people are criminals majority of them right <laughs> because it's it's hard for you to measure what they're doing yeah you know they can tell me oh your website had this many visits so it meant that you know in revenue you should be about five million and it's like no that's absolute bullshit <laughs> yeah right but it took me a couple of times of getting burned to learn and i'm still learning For example, when I started our New Hampshire location, a marketing company walk in and they're like, we're going to do all this amazing stuff for you. And I'm like, yes, you're going to help my SEOs, my organic search, paid ads. But what I didn't know about this company is they had no idea about my industry. Mm -hmm. I'm in New Hampshire, right? They're used to marketing people with lumber and wood and, <laughs> you know, farming stuff. And now I just gave them a bunch of money to market a aesthetic practice. Yeah. Right. I got burnt on that deal because whatever you're doing in marketing, my biggest advice is you have to address that and follow up with it. You can't just let it go. So you have to review those analytics monthly. And you have to make sure that you are converting patients with that, right? So example, something that I've done that's very successful is I have a digital billboard. And with the digital billboard, it captures people's cell phone IDs. Hmm. So I can position the billboard in front of my competitors. You could fence them. So you could fence practices. So every time a cell phone walks in there, it captures the ID and it sends your ad to it. Wow. Now you could create that same digital fence around your practice. So you could see every time they go to your website and you could see if that cell phone ID actually came into your practice. <laughs> yeah. So that 
I can quantify and say, yes, this definitely came in and this makes sense because this gave me so much revenue. But also still don't neglect your email marketing and your email campaigns and your promotions that you do. And then on top of that, your social media. So everything sort of plays into this pot and your referral. Your referral is your best marketing, right? I'm confused and mind blown. So tell me again, you've got a, a billboard that if someone walks past it, it recognizes their phone basically. And then if that person also jumps on your website from that phone, you can go, oh, there's a link. I've marketed yeah. well to them. Yeah. How the hell do you do that? And is that legal? <laughs> <laughs> At first I was like, I'm not sure if this is legal, but <laughs> it is. You could store that cell phone ID for up to 30 days and right. you could push market your ad to that cell phone up That's to 30 days. That's amazing. Yeah. I'll tell you why this is so relevant. I had a patient just yesterday and you know, I've never met him before and, he, and he's working on a startup to do basically exactly what you just said. And I, I did, I'd never heard of it before. And my mind was blown yesterday and now you're already doing it. So um, you need to let us know how you do that. <laughs> And then we need to check Australian <laughs> law. Uh, but no, I think that's genius. You know, because really you are, you, you, there's the proof. Your, your marketing led people to your website. It's proof. Yes. And to your office. Because yeah. you could create that same digital fence around your office so you could actually see if you converted that cell phone um, ID to come into your practice. Yeah. But there's so much going on now. And I'm I'm always... I have a love for this because I've been burnt so many times. So I'm always researching mm. what's the next best step. How can we, you know, do better and what else can we do? And I think with the use of artificial intelligence, mm -hmm. we're going to be able to do so much more. So I'm keeping a real pulse on those marketing companies that are utilizing AI software yeah. um, to create funnels uh, of patients into your practice and, I have a couple that my office manager now is interviewing to see which one would be a great fit for us. Mm. Yeah, you're so right. I think things are going to change a lot in the next, well, six months, let alone a couple of years. <laughs> Exponentially. Yeah. Um, in terms I'm just happy to be living in this time. <laughs> I know. It's awesome. Now, in terms of your socials, you obviously got big Instagram presence, but you know, is that just to sort of showcase what you do or you're actually putting money into marketing through your socials? Um, and do you use anything else apart from Instagram? So we use TikTok, LinkedIn, um, Twitter. Uh, we have different social. We have the Aeros Institute for the school. Beautify Fairies more than my fun blog, mm -hmm. but it actually converts patients because we could take a look at those analytics for our website and see how many people came in through Linktree, mm. um, which is also really impressive. Um, so that's why I say I don't sleep on social. We do social media ad campaigns. We've done them. We've done collaborative ad campaigns. We've paused for a while. And I think the later half of this year, we're going to wrap back up again. That's awesome. Yeah, I think a lot of people, you know, they sort of, 
their socials, including myself, like I'm, I'm finding that Instagram engagement is, is very poor at the moment. And I don't know if you've got any experience of that, but you know, if you've got a big account and maybe you grew that a few years ago, you can sort of con continue using that momentum. But for newer accounts, I think it's harder. Do you still think that Instagram's the place to be or, you know, are you putting more effort into TikTok now? I it's do. I do. Because, you know, I can tell you 36% of our website visit in June came from LinkedIn, which came from Instagram for our school. Right. So I think that's a high value right there. Um, I don't see LinkedIn. I get proposition more on LinkedIn <laughs> than ever, anything. Um, but it's nice to be on, on everything. Yeah. Um, Propositioned? What do, you, <laughs> what do you mean proposition? <laughs> Romantically, for like the, no, <laughs> <All right>. no. <laughs> no, like I didn't know LinkedIn no, was a dating Instagram. website. You, no, that's Instagram. Right. I get on a daily weird, creepy man asking me to be a sugar baby. Wow, <laughs> like it's just the craziest thing. I'm like, these people don't have a life, and they're gonna give me $800 a week. One is like, I'll give you $800 a week. No sex involved. I'm like, <laughs> like <laughs> you'd have to come better than that, buddy. No, I'm kidding. But yeah. <laughs> that is hilarious. Um, I'm going to go back to aesthetics just for one sec, because I'd be remiss not to ask you this. We're off, off the sex chat now. Um, with... Uh, some of these newer toxins, like I know you train, for, oh, sorry, you consult for Everless and you've got um, Juvo in the States now, which we don't have yet here in Australia. But I was lucky to visit um, the Everless headquarters. I met Rui Avila. We had a good chat and I got to see where it's all happening. But when a new product comes like um, Juvo and you've been using, I don't know, Botox and Dysport and whatever for 10, 20 years in that practice, how do you introduce a new toxin to, to your patients? Because we've just had a new toxin here called Latibo. Maybe it'll make its way to the States eventually. And I think both... Latibo. Latibo, yeah. Um, it's known in Korea as Botulex. So, you know, different territories have different names. But I, I guess it, it creates a bit of confusion with both patients, but also injectors. Because you know, they're sort of mind scrambles when there's maybe different units involved or different efficacy or how many units are comparable to one unit of Botox, which, you know, like it or, or loathe it, it's still the currency that we sort of think about when we think about toxins, when we're thinking about equivalents. So how do you introduce a new toxin? So it's a long worded question. So I guess for me is why would you want to introduce a new toxin? Yeah. Right. So if you have Botox, Botox doing well, you're using Xeomin, Xeomin's doing well. Why would I introduce Javal? I agree. I well, have the same question. Why would questions. you introduce Latibo? Well, well there's, a, there's a huge commercial element to some of these other products. So like Latibo, I know, is making a huge difference to a lot of clinics' bottom line in terms of the margin because it's just exponentially less expensive than some of the competitive brands. So I think there is, there's a commercial element to it as well, yeah. for sure. So when I get a new product that's on the market, I always think, how is this product different? Mm. Yeah. What are my patient's outcome going to be? And what does my numbers look like? 
so for your um and what does my collaboration with this company going to look like and with Javel, i work uh Evelis, i work closely with them my margins are great on Javel. my patient outcome is fantastic with Javel. and here's a company that is working a little bit different. They're operating more of a beauty company because they don't have that therapeutic side. So now they're going to help me propel my marketing. So it's a win-win. My patients are happy. My pockets look good. I'm getting collaboration with marketing. So if I'm introduced in something, I usually cherry pick a couple of patients first that I know very well and get them back and test their feedback like I am doing now with Daxify, which is our latest product. And if my patients are happy, then I'm happy. And I know this isn't going to be a good product for me to introduce generally. So I talk to my patients about it. And majority of the time, I am fortunate enough, they're going to do what I suggest them to do right? There's going to be no, but if I was a newer injector, you have to give them the facts. Hey, we have this great product. It's new. It just came out. It's called Jibo. And in their head-to-head clinical data, again, Botox, maybe at five months, their patient was happier. I would suggest you give it a try. It's nice to have a backup just in the event. Xeomin doesn't work for you, right? Just in the event, you know, blah, blah, blah. So that would be kind of the language I would give them. But what I do know is a lot of the companies now are doing such great consumer marketing that a lot of the times the patients are coming in before you even suggested asking you about it. Yeah. If you have it. But but it, going back to what you originally said, if your patient is happy on, I don't know, Xeomin, from their perspective... Do, do they question you and say, well, okay, but I'm, I'm happy with what I'm getting. So what's in it for you to use Juvo? Did they ask you that or not really? Because I found that a hard question I sort of answer. That's, that's, that's interesting. I think if they've been using something for a while, the patients like the idea of switching it up. Mm. It's something new. So they've been using Xeomin for five years. Now they get to switch it up right? It's almost like switching injectors again, right? Yeah. It's well, something the, new. Well, my patients would be terrified. They're like, no, I don't want a new okay. injector and, and this stuff's working. I don't want the new stuff. I'm, I'm quite happy. And, uh, you know, a lot of patients, maybe I've just got sort of more positive ages where they're maybe a bit more conservative. They don't want change. They want that stability and trust in a product, I guess. So it's, it's interesting. Thank you. Yeah. But it depends on your patient population. I find that your millennials and your Gen Zs are more likely to switch it up. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Uh, um, the others are like, no way, man. But your, your but, millennials are like, sure, I'll try something new. I mean, my understanding was that 
that was one of Evelis's or is Evelis's sort of strategy that they, they are targeting younger patients who who are more likely to maybe want to try something cool and new so maybe it works maybe there's a different toxin for different generations who knows yeah no, different yeah. different uh different strokes for different folks there you go now audrey we we ask some rapid fire questions at the end of these sorts of podcasts um so you don't have time to think about it you just got to give us an answer okay so david first okay, one okay so All right drum roll drum roll okay what is your favorite toxin and why if you only had to use one Oh man, you guys are really putting me on the spot. Yes. Oh, You're stuck <laughs> on a desert island. Your mum's there as your patient. You've only got one toxin. Personally, for me, I love the other. Okay, cool. And you didn't say why? Because she loves it. Oh, just, she, she loves it. <laughs> I, I love it. I love it. Okay. I love the way it makes my face feel. And it, I don't feel as heavy when I get it done with equivalent units from the other ones. I could maybe use less dose in. I don't know. I just love the way I feel with it. Okay. It's just easy. It's light. Now, similar question. What's your number one filler and sub-brand of filler? Not brand, but, you know, sub-brand and why? So, yeah, which one would you use the most, I guess? Guys, that is so hard. That's We ask Are the tough questions, Audrey. Me? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So for, oh my goodness, I think it all depends on area, right? So for temples, I might go no, with no, Baluma. No, 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 no. For chin, I might go with Baluma. <laughs> for jawline, I might go with Radiast or Velox. Ah, uh, you cheated there. Oh, okay. that is so, uh, it's so hard okay, I'm, gonna, I'm I'll, such a product for. I'm going to reword the question. Everything. What do you think is the most versatile filler that you can use in most places? That's That's a better question. Guys, she's looking it. angry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting angry because you know, if I was on a desert island and I didn't have any other filler and I needed something versatile, yes, it's probably going to be Versa. Okay, okay. and that's uh, from Prelinium right? because I know I could almost put that product anywhere, yeah. But when I have a plethora of things in my closet. For chin, I like to go for Voluma. She's cheating again. Jawline. I'm cheating again. <laughs> but if I was stuck on an island, it would be Versa. You're like, you're like trying to herd cats, Audrey. Yeah. <laughs> That's a tough one. Um, is Versa from the Prelenium brand? We don't have that here. Yes, it's from the Prelenium brand. Okay, okay, cool. All right, so what is your go-to cannula make and size? It's not always the size of the cannula, Audrey. <laughs> <laughs> the motion through the soft tissue. <laughs> I would say I like a 20 to the 25 gauge. I've seen it again. I like a 25 gauge if I had to pick And is that a TSK or who are you? A TSK. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. cool. Okay, cool. Now, this is one word, Audrey, not, not, not different nuances and, and examples. <laughs> We're like mad scientists. There could never be one word. <laughs> Aspiration, yes or no? Yes. Okay, okay, cool. That was easy. That's good. And what's been the best book? That one was easy. Yeah, I thought that was going to be the most difficult one. <laughs> what's been your best book, course, or other educational offering that has influenced your practice the most? Educational offering. Oh, my goodness. So it could be anything. Like could be a, could be our podcast. Could Conference. Be a book. Could, yeah. A book. 
whatever. I'm a numbers person. Okay. And have you guys read Freakonomics? Yes. Long time ago. Yep. Great book. Long time ago. Yep. I feel like, oh my God, there's so many books. There's Freakonomics. There is, um, oh my goodness. Like, why am I drawing a blank right now? Yeah. That's okay. Written book, book written by, I'll text it to you guys. You guys can put this up. Okay. This is my ultimate favorite textbook. The guy's from New Jersey. He's a physician. It's purple and pink. And <laughs> that is my Bible. And I can't think of the name of it right now. Yeah. So I'll have to text it to you guys. And I recommend that all the time for new injectors. I thought you were going to say the secret. Don't know the secret one. too. The, the book, it's called The Secret. The secret it's about like for, all like, you know, yeah, mani- no, manifestation. That's, that's yeah. an amazing book. Yeah. Okay. Because I'm very spiritual as well. There you go. Well, that was a great chat. I really, really enjoyed it. Thank you for, you know, sharing your time with us, Audrey, and, and some of your insights. Did you enjoy that? I did. It was so fun. Thank you guys for having no, me. No, thank you. I really enjoyed this. It's great. And if I come to Australia, I'm coming to visit. Yeah, absolutely. If, we, if we find out you've been and you so, haven't visited us, we'll be very upset. Yes. And don't come to Boston without saying hello. Of course. Absolutely. Thanks again, Audrey. And we'll speak soon. Take care. Thanks, Audrey. Thank you for having me. Bye. For our latest news, follow us on Instagram at Inside Aesthetics Podcast. If you want to get in touch with myself or David, follow us on Instagram as well at Dr. Jake Sloan and David underscore Inside Aesthetics. Join our IA Patreon platform for invaluable business and injectable education. Get access to our global community of like-minded professionals, live and interactive Zoom sessions, hints and tip videos, webinars, and more. Head over to www.insideaesthetics.com forward slash Patreon for more information.